evening to study the Word of God even deeper uh, together. Uh, I'm grateful for this privilege, and tonight, as uh, Dallas had already mentioned, we will uh, be looking at the passage in Numbers uh, chapter 21. Uh, we're only going to be looking at the first nine verses uh, of the chapter, uh, and then uh, I believe Harrison will look at the rest of the remainder of the chapter for us is the next time. But uh, if you haven't already, uh, turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Uh, and since it's just nine verses, we will go ahead and read uh, the entirety of the passage together. So beginning in verse 1, the word of God reads, When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Or will you go to the Lord in prayer with me once more? Well, Heavenly Father, this is indeed your inerrant and infallible word. And Father, we pray tonight that your spirit would instruct, would teach, and equip us. Father, may lost people be regenerated and may saints be upbuilded and may the Son be glorified through your word this evening, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so again, Numbers 21 is our passage of study this evening, and if you will remember with me last week, Aaron looked at chapter 20 before us. Uh, and to kind of uh, to catch us up to where we are uh, in Numbers 21 for our passage tonight, I just kind of want to hit some of the high points of the previous chapter in verse 20. Um, and if you haven't listened to that lesson uh, from Aaron, please go to the website and you'll uh, listen to the lesson there. It was uh, definitely a, um, a crazy passage of some of the things that were going on. Uh, some of the things that Moses had to suffer through. Uh, and so just to kind of uh, give you an idea of some of those things, if you weren't here 
or if you need a refresher. Uh, in Numbers chapter 20, in, in the midst of some taxing demands of leadership, uh, Moses suffers a great loss, really. Uh, he suffers from the loss of his sister uh, that we will find in that chapter. Uh, there is some serious opposition uh, and complaints uh, coming from the people of God, which leads Moses to some intense frustration uh, from their rebellious spirit. Uh, and the loss of temper uh, eventually leads him to publicly disrespect God, which ultimately costs him uh, entry uh, into the promised land. Uh, later on in that chapter, Moses suffers another uh, family loss through the death of his brother Aaron. Uh, and we will see as well uh, in that chapter the uh, transferring of the high priesthood. Uh, and again, those were just some of the high points that were uh, taking place in, in chapter 20. Uh, and tonight, um, as we begin looking uh, at our passage here in, in chapter 21, um, we see really a deadly challenge, which eventually turns into a glorious uh, victory uh, in this passage. Uh, this passage also continues with what should be an all-too-familiar um, whining, grumbling, and complaining uh, from the people of God. Um, but I hope tonight as we look at this passage together that there will be some things uh, that we can draw from it, uh, specifically uh, some things concerning the nature of God's judgment. Uh, and I hope uh, also tonight uh, that this passage will cause us to gaze upon Christ with an even deeper a love and devotion for him. All right. So uh, as we look through this passage together, uh, some of the things that we're going to look at, uh, if you're taking notes, you can uh, write these down as well. Uh, the first thing we're going uh, to look at together, specifically in the beginning of this passage, uh, is the sheer gravity of Israel's sin, of the people of Israel's uh, sin. Uh, second, we will see the judgment of God, the just judgment of God. Uh, thirdly, we will see how the people will respond uh, to God's just judgment. Uh, and then lastly, uh, we will see together, uh, in the midst of God's judgment, we see God's merciful uh, provision uh, for his people. So those are just a few things uh, to keep in mind as we look uh, at this passage uh, together. Now the first thing again, that we want to look at is the gravity of Israel's sin. And just briefly, I want to read verses 1 through 5 again, uh, and then we will walk through them together. So again, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction, so that the name of the place was called Hormah. And verses 4 and 5 is where I really want you to pay attention to what's going on here. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, where there is no food and no water? 
and we loathe this worthless food. So, uh, as we look at uh, the sinfulness of the people of Israel, as we look at the gravity uh, of Israel's sin, uh, what's happening here? What's happening uh, in these few uh, verses? Well, Israel basically uh, blasphemes God. Uh, They are ungrateful uh, in the very presence of God's gracious, merciful, and generous provision for them. Uh, But I want us to look at some things specifically uh, here in verses 4 and 5 concerning uh, Israel, the people of Israel. Notice with me in verse 4, the very last sentence, and the people became uh, impatient uh, on the way. So the first thing as we look at uh, the people of Israel's sin here is I want us to notice their impatience. Um, It's understandable why they would be impatient, right? Uh, They were to go around the land of Edom, okay? And if they could only go through Edom, then it wouldn't be too much further to get to the land of Canaan. But because of the command of the Lord, they couldn't, they can't go that way. They are commanded to go around. And so they have to go around the long way. And this region uh, that they have to go in is, is really a terrible uh, region uh, to go through uh, to get uh, to the promised land. So it's, it's very easy uh, to understand how the people of God uh, could be impatient here. But although it's easy to understand their impatience, I want us to also see that it isn't excusable. It isn't excusable. If you will remember with me, the spies in earlier chapters had gone into the land. And they came back to give a report. And they told the people of Israel the land that the Lord had promised them was indeed good land. And if you remember what happened is the majority of the spies had trembled. And only two of the spies had been faithful. But the people of Israel followed the majority of the spies that trembled. So, in a sense, really, the mess that comes after their rejection of the command of God, in a sense, is their own making. Is their own making. So, Again, it's very easy to understand their impatience, but it isn't excusable, okay? It isn't excusable. Also notice with me in verse 5, I want us to see how the people of Israel irreverently speak, not only against Moses, but against God Himself. Look with me at verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Now our, or if you will, let me just own it myself, tend to think or ask the question when we come across this verse, well, who do these people think they are, right? This is Moses whom God has appointed to be the mediator for them that they are speaking against. And this is God, Yahweh, who they are speaking against. The one who brought them out of bondage from Egypt. The very God who parted the Red Sea. 
This is the God whom they are speaking against. So, who do they think they are? Well, we tend to do the same thing, don't we? We tend to do the same thing. What, what exactly are you doing in my life, Lord? Do you know what you're doing? So we're, we're no different. We're no different than the people of Israel here. And so they speak against Moses and against God uh, himself. I want you to also notice that they question God's plan of redemption. Again, verse 5. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They, in simple language, are pretty much accusing God of having a lousy plan. They're pretty much accusing God of having a lousy plan. So the dialogue can follow along something like this. Well, why have you brought us out of the land of, G- of Egypt to die? You've got a terrible plan, Lord. You have a terrible plan that has put us in an awful path. Lord, you should have left us in Egypt. So they question the very plan of a sovereign God. And again, we do the very same thing. We question God. Next, they doubt God's ability to make provision for them in the wilderness. Notice with me in verse 5, once again. For there is no food. This is the people of Israel speaking. For there is no food and no water. Well, then that begs the question, what do you mean there is no food? What do you mean there is no water? What's God been doing? Hasn't He provided water for you through a rock? Hasn't He given you food to eat, bread from heaven? Hasn't He given you quail so that you have meat to eat? And they say there is no food and no water here. Even after God had so mercifully provided and proven to to provide for them, they still doubt His future provision for them. They still doubt. In the midst of God continuing to provide for them, they still doubt Him. Next, and lastly, to kind of feed off of this previous point, we see in this section, their people of Israel were ungrateful for the provision of God. Notice at the end of verse 5, the statement. It says, and we loathe this worthless food. And we loathe this worthless food. They are really speaking of God's provision for them as worthless. As worthless. I bring all of these things to mind to simply say, to simply understand the gravity of the sinfulness of the people here in this passage. 
They don't acknowledge the power of God. They don't appreciate the overwhelming generosity that God had displayed to them. They don't acknowledge His mercy, His sovereignty, and they simply didn't trust in His Word at all. But we do the very same thing. And so not only is this the gravity of their sin, but it's it's the gravity of our sin as well. Not only did they dishonor God, but apart from Christ, we dishonored God. So as we we see this, I want us to, to see the similarities. We're not so different from the people of Israel. We're not. Yet we tend to look and say, and ask the question, well, who do they think they are to question a sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God? And yet, in our lives, we do the very same thing. When trials come, we question God. What are you doing? When we ought to trust in His sovereign plan. All right? So, after the people of God's complainings, after their grumblings, after their questioning in the very plan of God, what happens next in our passage? I'm so glad you asked. The holy, just judgment of God comes upon them. Verse 6. Read with me here. Then the Lord... Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. A quick comment that I want to make uh, really briefly, uh, something that me and uh, Brother Dallas talked about for a a brief moment uh, this morning. Um, We're not going to spend any time here at all. Feel free to go and study it uh, for yourself. Uh, but this really is, is kind of not the best translation uh, here. Uh, the fiery serpents, they weren't literally on fire. Uh, it's just speaking of the poisonous uh, bites uh, of the serpents. Uh, so I just wanted to make that, that quick comment there. Um, feel free to uh, uh, study this uh, passage even more deeply uh, and look at other translations that might uh, be a little bit more accurate. Uh, here as far as wording goes. Uh, So we aren't going to spend any time uh, on that. But what we've seen so far is is the weighty, wretched, sinful people of Israel in their questioning, doubting, and unwillingness to acknowledge the things of, of God that He has done for them. And so what He then does is bring a fiery judgment upon the people. So the people sin. They are complaining about their circumstances. And what happens? God sends them more adversity. He sends them more adversity. So in a sense, it's it's almost like this. It's almost like the people are saying things are bad. Things are really, really bad. And God goes, oh yeah? You want to see how bad things can really get? You think they're already bad and that they can't get any worse? Well, watch this. (laughs) So God brings judgment on the people through poisonous serpents in the land. 
When I was younger, uh, I was a very lazy kid, very lazy. All I wanted to do was play video games. Uh, I played baseball for most of my life, uh, but outside of that and before I even started working, I was a pretty lazy child. Video games consumed my life. Um, and as I look back on those years, I am reminded of what a waste that was. Uh, what a, what a um, the damage that that caused me because then I began to prioritize video games over many other things, right? Well, uh, during the summer months uh, when I was at home, um, during the summer didn't really have much baseball going on. Baseball ended uh, before the beginning of the summer, and uh, I would have I would have chores to do. Uh, my stepfather would leave me chores. My mom would be at work, uh, he would be at work, uh, and when they both got home, and specifically when he got home, um, it was expected of me to have done all these things. Um, well, I learned a lesson one time of not doing any of the chores thinking that I could hold them off uh, for a later date, because at the time I didn't think they were necessary uh, to do on that particular day. Uh, as I look back, that was very wrong of me to think, especially when uh, I was given a very specific instruction to do them uh, that day. Uh, so as you can imagine, that entire day, what did I do? I was very lazy and I played video games all day. Well, my stepfather uh, got home uh, and he was a little furious uh, as to why that I did not do the things that he asked me to do. Uh, and I struggled to give him an answer because I, I knew I was in the wrong. Uh, I knew I shouldn't have been playing video games all day. And he made a, sim and he made a statement um, that I, I think most people here uh, throughout uh, their life at some point, maybe more than others. Um, because I struggled to give him an answer, uh, he said, all right, son, we can either do this the easy way or the hard way. All right. We can either do this the easy way or the hard way. You can either tell me exactly why you didn't do the chores I asked you to do, or you can suffer the consequences and have even more to do, right? Well, I chose to not give him uh, a direct answer uh, at this point in time. And uh, what happened? Well, I suffered the consequences. I could not play video games for a month. Uh, at the time, I thought it was the end of the world that I didn't know what was gonna happen, <laughs> you know. Uh, I just thought my life is over. My parents hate me. Uh, and anyways, uh, I had video games taken away, but then I had even more chores than I could ever, I, some of the stuff I didn't even know needed to be done, um, honestly. And so I had so much more to do, and I literally had no time to do anything else. That is literally how I spent most of that month is doing what he needed me to do. Um, my point uh, in, in giving that story is, is that sometimes 
Petty trials may come our way, but sometimes it takes even more fiery trials for us to learn a lesson, right? For us to learn a lesson. So here, Israel, they're either going to do what God has commanded them to do, uh, or they're not. And so the question is, are they going to obey God and do things the easy way, the, thing, the way that He has commanded them to do so, or are they going to disobey God and do things their way, the hard way? Well, as we looked previously, because of their sin, right, what, what did they choose? They choose to do things, in essence, the hard way. The hard way. And so God brings a fiery trial upon them. And oftentimes, as I said earlier, it seems that the lessons uh, that we ought to learn in the smaller trials uh, end up, we end up learning through greater trials coming upon us. Um, and so that's really, in essence, what we, what we find uh, in this judgment, uh, is God brings just judgment because of the people's sin, because of their complainings, because of their grumblings, because of their doubting, because of their questioning of His sovereign plan, He brings judgment, and He is just in doing so. But thirdly, I want us to look together at the people's response to God's judgment. Uh, This passage takes a turn pretty quickly in just a matter of a verse or two. Okay. At the beginning of the passage, right, we see the people of Israel do nothing but complain and question. Then God's judgment comes, and we see a complete 180. We see a complete 180. Look at verse 7 with me. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He might Take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So the people complain because of their sin, and then judgment comes upon them from God because of their sin, and then they respond. And this is an extraordinary response from the people. This is a precious moment uh, in this passage, because how do the people respond. They respond in repentance and they respond in prayer. We see a beautiful thing here because the people in fact acknowledge their sin. They seek after God's forgiveness that they go to God's appointed mediator whom He appointed, whom they spoke against and they asked Him to intercede on their behalf. The very one whom they spoke against, they asked Him to intercede on their behalf. And so again, God uses this judgment, this fiery trial to press them to the very point that they recognize their need and they respond to that very need in repenting of their sin, confessing their sin, and look to seek God's forgiveness in and through prayer. And I want you to notice that they recognize and acknowledge their sin. They recognize and they acknowledge their sin. Verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. 
We've sinned. I'm reminded of the verse in 1 John, specifically chapter 1, verse 9. There where John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, there is a a sense here in that verse of not only the acknowledgement of our sin, but in the same sense, agreeing with God about our sin. A true acknowledgement of sin, friends, is ultimately agreeing with God about our sin. So the people respond in repentance and prayer. Well, how does God respond to this? And this is where we will conclude our time together. Verses 8 and 9. Let's read those together once more. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the last thing we're going to see is God's merciful provision for his people. So God chooses here in these verses to command Moses to take a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. Uh, Now, some things I want to kind of note here. Uh, Some Old Testament commentators uh, kind of go wild, if you will, uh, with some of their reasons and discussions on why God chose a bronze serpent. Uh, And we won't get into any of those. Uh, Feel free if you are curious to look into some of those discussions. Uh, They're quite interesting. Uh, But notice here, okay, Moses is to take a bronze serpent, a bronze snake, and put it on a pole. What are the snakes doing in this passage? Killing people. Why are they killing people? Well, it's the judgment of God. So what's the bronze snake on a pole a picture of? God's just judgment on Israel for their sin. That's what that's a picture of. I want to note here, if we read in the Old Testament of the Hebrew sacrifices, when the representative was being prepared uh, to be slain, in place of their sin, something had to be done. Uh, well, what had to be done is the household, the head of the household, I'm sorry, the head of the households had to touch the representative sacrifice. So they had to do something. They had to touch the representative sacrifice. Here in our passage, 
In Numbers 21, what do the people of Israel have to do? Well, they really have to do nothing. They don't have to touch the head of each household, doesn't have to touch the bronze serpent on a pole. No, our passage tells us that they just have to look. They just have to look to the bronze serpent. All they have to do is look. They are looking away from themselves and looking to the symbol that God and God alone has provided and put before them. There is nothing that the people of Israel have to do here. There is nothing that they could do here. Salvation, as they later recognized in verse 7, can only come from God, and they are contributing nothing at all. And friends, is, is that not saving faith? Is that not saving faith? Isn't saving faith looking to Christ, the sacrifice that God and God alone has provided for His people, and looking away from ourselves, and looking away from our good deeds and our bad deeds, and looking to Him alone? Isn't that why Jesus eventually goes to this passage in His conversation with Nicodemus in John 3? And in John 3, chapter 3, in verses 14 through 15, Christ tells Nicodemus what? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So what is Christ telling Nicodemus here? That when, we, that when Israel had to look at the brass serpent on a pole and simply trust on the promise of God that if they would just look to the serpent, they will be saved. And in the same way that they had to look on the serpent to be saved, so must we look to Christ and Him crucified. But when we look to Christ and Him crucified, we don't just see the just judgment of God, although we do see that. But unlike the people of Israel, when they're looking to the serpent, the bronze serpent, it reminds them of the judgment of God. But friends, when we look to Christ, when we look to the cross, we don't just see a picture of God's judgment, but we see God mercifully, graciously providing a sacrifice on our behalf. And so although we are a people dead in our trespasses and sins, although we are a people of unclean lips, although we were a people following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and, and desiring nothing more to satisfy our selfish, fleshly desires, although we were in that state, when we look to Christ, we live. We live. All we have to do is look to Him. Look to Christ. And just as the people of Israel looked to the bronze serpent, they would live. When we look to Christ and repent of our sins and embrace Him as our Lord and Savior, we shall live. Friends, a miraculous thing 
Although I feel we're reminded of it every week, we can't be reminded of it enough. God has been gracious and merciful to a people that are undeserving. We deserve the judgment. That's what we deserve. But when we look to Christ, we don't just see God's judgment. We see his merciful provision on our behalf. Because, friends, that was the plan from before the foundation of the world. Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Amen. Well, let's pray to God. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to look at your word, to be reminded the sin of, of your people, but also to be reminded that we, apart from Christ, were no different. Lord, we thank you that just as you mercifully provided for your people a way of salvation, we thank you that that is only a glimpse of what was to come through Christ, who has already come, who not only would bear the sin of the world and the sin of your people, but would take upon the very wrath that we deserve. But not only would he do that, but that he would utter the words, it is finished. And that when he gave up the ghost, and he ascended to your right hand three days later, that that is where our hope lies, that when we look to Christ and we look to the cross, we don't just have to be reminded of your judgment, but we are also reminded of your merciful provision for your people. So, Father, we thank you so much for Christ. And I pray tonight that as we looked at this passage, uh, that you would give us a, a, a greater and a deeper love for him, a devotion for him, and a better understanding of who you are and of who we are, were apart from Christ.